Wow, that is exactly what we're going to be seeing today. We're going to be seeing the degree to which his light, the light of his love, is shining on us. It's in Revelation chapter 2, if you would turn there, the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. We've been looking at the one who's behind what you see up there on the picture on the screens, uh, at least for those who have the eyes of faith. And in particular, the one who's behind that little white church up there that looks so alone in an empty universe at the mercy of forces beyond its control or so it can feel. It's what the church of Jesus Christ has often felt over the centuries, as did a number of these seven churches of Revelation that we're just launching into. It's the very picture uh, the true church in America uh, is more and more these days as the culture is so changing. Christ began his church to the letter at Ephesus in verse 1 by answering some of the questions that arise from the condition that you'll see up there. He began in chapter 2, verse 1, by saying that he's the one who holds the seven stars, as we saw last week, uh, in his right hand. We saw that this means that he's the master of the angelic powers, including everything from the guardian angels of children to congregations. We saw that the seven stars are not pastors uh, or postmen, but rather celestial powers, angels from heaven. And so when it says that he holds the seven stars in his right hand, and the verb that is used in the Greek is an intensive verb that makes a point that he is in command of them, he's talking about angelic majesties. And we've seen that as mighty as they may be, as glorious and as marvelous as they may be, there is another being of a completely different order of being, of unattainable power, who's got them in the palm of his hand and sends them at his command. So this is a governmental image here in Revelation by which we see a good part of how Christ rules uh, through the angelic powers. It's an image that we saw is reinforced by the robe that it says he was wearing, as it says in chapter 1. A robe upon which, according to chapter 19, a name is written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So they go together. The master of the angelic powers, of powers who re- wield power over the nations, is himself the ruler of the nations. That's our king, as we saw last time. But this week we'll see that (laughs) that's not the half of it. In fact, it's just the preface for what's most important about him and who's most important to him. Because this awesome being of a completely different order of being, this master of the angelic powers, this ruler of the nations, is the keeper of the church. Roman numeral one in your notes. The keeper of the church. Out of his passion for our congregation, and you can fill in the blanks, as the keeper of the church, we are the center of his attention. We are at the center, the center of the attention of this incredible being. You know, on my first Sunday here in Revelation 1, you saw that slide that's up there on the screens. We saw that out of our emptiness, out of our brokenness, we, all we have to do is say, come, Lord Jesus. And he answers that prayer. Well, today we're going to see that out of his passion for this congregation, the light of his love is shining on us. Jesus is here. And we are at the center of his attention for reasons that we can only begin to imagine, reasons that would blow the minds of anyone sitting in that little white church. 
as we'll soon see if you stay with me. Again, it's Revelation chapter 2, starting in the last half of verse 1, where he goes on to call himself the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. He walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, according to the verse just before, the last verse of chapter 1, verse 20, these lampstands represent the churches. It says the seven lampstands are the seven churches. That is, they stand for the seven churches of Asia Minor, these little white churches that Christ wrote these letters to. So what's the big deal about the fact that he calls these churches lampstands? Well, to begin with, they're heavenly lampstands. As one commentator said, these are just the first of many indications that we see all through Revelation that certain things on earth have their equivalent in heaven, certain things that are really important on earth. And by far the greatest example of this comes at the end of Revelation in chapter 2, 22, and that's all about us too, so stay with me. So he walks among the seven golden lampstands according to chapter 2. And nine chapters later in Revelation 11, it says that these heavenly lampstands stand before the Lord of all the earth in the temple in heaven where God has his throne, which means that they are where it's at in heaven. In the heavenly temple, a temple that's mentioned 17 times over the next 14 chapters. It's at the heart of Revelation, so much so that everything originates there. The temple is uh, ground zero, you might say. It's the nuclear core of all that happens in the book of Revelation. And here we see that we are represented right there in the heart of heaven. So, You have these seven little white churches in Asia Minor, and they were just house churches way down on earth. And they likely had no idea just how important they were at the heart of heaven. Many of them being Jews, there were many Jews in these churches, would have known about the lampstands that stand before the Lord. Um, They knew about the Jewish temple and that it was a copy of the heavenly temple as David told Solomon and as the writer of the Hebrews said, the things in the temple were copy of the things in heaven, literal things in heaven. The Jewish believers had heard about the lampstand all their lives and they knew about their origin in heaven and you can be sure they'd be saying something like, are you kidding me? Some of them stand for us? For the churches? We stand before the Lord of all the earth? In the lamps, we see, or at least we can start to see, Christ's passion for our congregation as he shines on us. We're not just talking about some plaque, you know, or memorial in heaven, one that could be taken for granted and collect dust that nobody notices. No, it's not just a static representation, but it's an active uh, illumination that goes up or down. We know that because Christ told the church at Ephesus that if they didn't repent, he would remove their lampstand from its place, from its place in heaven which means that the light of the lamps in heaven varies uh, according to the state of the church on earth. Commentators are agreed that while these lampstands stood for the literal churches that John was writing to, on a figurative level, they stand for all the churches on the earth at any one time. As churches die or are disciplined, he takes their lamps away. And as churches are born, a new lamp takes its place. Depending on their health or maturity, some shine more brightly than others. It's almost like, it's almost like, and we can't see it completely, but it's almost like there's this like live feed 
from the churches, from the temples of the Holy Spirit on earth to the temple in heaven. It seems that at the heart of heaven, there's kind of maybe a barometer, you might say, that monitors the church he died for. Not just the church universal, but individual churches. All because even in the temple in heaven, we are the center of his attention. You can make a good case that there's a starry host of heavenly lamps, the uh, heavenly sign of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant that he will make us as the stars of the heavens. There's a million glimmers up there of what one day will be, one day we will be, a star-celled beauty in glory, as we'll see in a bit. But of course, We're not just heavenly lights, we're earthly lights. We're not just the light of the temple up there or part of it, or at least uh, we're the light of the world down here. And the vision of the the lampstands is about both, about what's going on in heaven and what's happening here on earth through the church of Jesus Christ in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. How so? Well, we're so much at the center of his attention that this is the first thing John says about him in Revelation 1. He said in verse 13 that I turned and having turned I saw seven golden lampstands and in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like the son of man. The first thing he notices is where he's standing. The King James translates it in the midst of the lampstand because he is not distant, he's in our midst. And then in our verse for today, Revelation 2.1, he calls himself the one who walks again among the seven golden lampstands, which means he's paying attention to them. He's tending them. He, as the keeper of the lampstands, it's a high priestly image. And just how important is this, you know, this activity to him? Well, for the word for walk here in Revelation 2.1 is a present active participle which denotes continual action, customary action. A characteristic action. And this verse reinforces what we saw in chapter 1 when it says he walks in the middle, in the midst of the lampstands. Which means that during the church age, his most important business uh, is not governmental. Important though that may be. No, it's, a, it's ecclesiastical. It has to do with us. It means he is with us in a very special way. As one commentator said, it is of the utmost importance for John's theology that the first statement he makes about the heavenly Christ is that he saw him among the lampstands. He is no absentee Lord who has withdrawn from earth at his ascension to return only at his second coming, meanwhile exercising his authority over the churches by remote control through their heavenly representative, the angels. No, the first characteristic of Christ revealed to John in his vision is that he is, a pre- that he is present among the earthly congregations of his people. And so the overall teaching is this. The lamp stands in heaven and his presence among the churches on earth assure that we are at the center of his attention. That the concentration of one, you know, who upholds the government of worlds is on the congregation of his people, on the likes of you and me here at Faith EPC. In the context of the rest of Scripture, it means that he's present with us in a way that he is present with no other person or organization or ministry because we are his body. 
It means that he is in the thick of it with us. It means that if you're looking for Christ in the church age, you're sure to find him uh, with the churches, warts and all. And so if you want to be in his presence and about his business, there is no better place to be. The local church is where it's at in a whole lot of ways. And he's tending to us to assure that we will be in the place of his glory. His priority activity as the keeper of the lampstands is to increase our glory. I wish we had time to unpack it, but uh, which of course he can do in painful ways by trimming and cutting and shaping the wick, which you've got to do, and doing whatever it takes to increase the flow of the oil and to purge away anything that's, that's hindering the oil of the Holy Spirit. It's not that he isn't glorified powerfully in many other ways through many other ministries. It's just that we have a very special identity and destiny, as we'll see, one that no other individual or institution can even begin to approach. He's in our midst in a way that will be found in no other place. The scripture teaches that it's where he will most fully be found. Because according to Paul, the church is his body, Ephesians 1.23, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you're thinking, how could this be? Why me? Why us? How could faith EPC be so important that we have a place in the temple in glory, that he walks in our midst on earth, that we have the attention of one such as he? Are you kidding me? He died for the church. It's just like it says on the cover of our bulletin, we are the church he died for. He didn't just die for us individually, which is our fixation in Western Christianity because the scripture made it clear that he died for us uh, congregationally for what only together we could be and that is the bride, the wife of the lamb in glory. And so Paul said he came and died to purchase the church with his blood. He gave himself up for her, Ephesians 5, 27. Christ loved not just me or you, but her for what together we could be. He gave himself up for her, he says, rather than giving up on her. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her. Yeah, there's a lot to be worked on, but he got to work. So what about you? that he might present to himself the church in all her glory. And what a glory it will be, as we'll see, without spot or blemish or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless before him. Not just me, but she. It's like the hymn, the church is one foundation. From heaven he came and sought who? Her. To be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her. For her life he died. And so here in Revelation, we see heaven's perspective on the church, that it's not just individuals that are his passion, but even more, it's the congregations of his people who are at the center of his attention on earth, even as they are in heaven. You know, I spent years looking for God after I finished high school, and he revealed himself to me in very varied and many different ways through people, through ministries like Labrie and Switzerland, and some of them were very profound, but it wasn't anything like what happened when I chose to commit myself to a church where he was really at work. I found him there. 
Nothing else could compare. There was, no, there was no getting tired of it. There was no end to it. I couldn't get enough of it. And so I decided to devote my life to the church. But then, of course, the honeymoon wore off, right to the point that we ended up being crucified by the church, or at least by some in the church, and not just once. And by the way, unlike with Christ, we couldn't just blame them because we had a part to play. I got to see as an elder and pastor behind the scenes how the sausage is made, you might say. <laughs> I saw from the inside out just how far we fall short of his glory. Just like the churches in Revelation did, as we'll see. But he stuck with them. He died for them. So how could we do any less? So here we are today. But what about you? Are you taking a wait-and-see attitude in this transition period, or are you all in? Are you withholding your love, keeping a safe distance? Yeah, I know, as someone said, you probably heard this, to dwell above with saints I love, well, that'll be glory, but to dwell below with saints I know, well, that's another story. (laughs) God knows. For him, it was a story that resulted in the cross of Calvary. But he did it because one day through the agonies and ecstasies of our stories in the church, thanks to the agony of his story, it's all going to be glory. How so? Well, this moves us to Roman numeral two in your notes. And I'll get there eventually. Roman numeral two. And you can fill in the blanks. He, for one, is all in as the keeper of the church, but he's also the builder of the city, which one day will be, fill in the blanks, the centerpiece of the new creation. Before he left, Christ said that he'd be working on two projects simultaneously. He said, I will build my church, and he also said, I go to prepare a place for you. And the two are linked. In the lampstands, we've seen one example of how certain things on earth have their equivalent in heaven. But do you know what the greatest example is? What everything on earth is leading up to? The whole of human history? What's the equivalent of the heavenly city? Well, it's what the letters to the churches lead up to in Philadelphia and Laodicea. And I wish we had time to unpack that, but it's what Hebrews leads up to. Hebrews 12, 22, where he, it makes explicit uh, uh, what the earthly equivalent is of the heavenly city. It says that the city in heaven is the equivalent of the church on earth. It's like, it's, it's like they're the same, but they're in these parallel universes. The writer of the Hebrews treats them as two sides of the same coin, one on earth and one in heaven. He says that in coming to the church, you have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads and myriads of angels, to the general assembly and to the church. It's what the whole Bible leads up to because the Apostle John said the same thing at the climax of Scripture. In Revelation 21.2, he says that the holy city in heaven is the bride, the wife of the lamb, the equivalent of the church on earth. 
They have the same identity, but the city is our destiny. Kind of like a butterfly is the destiny of a caterpillar. As it develops in the cocoon and what feels like the darkness and the death and struggles to break free. To break free into what? Into what Paul calls the riches of our glory as a church. He said this in the first passage, in the first prayer, in the first chapter of a letter that's all about the church. He said, first and foremost, as your supreme motivation for all that you do as a church, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, Ephesians 1.18, so that you would know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power who was able to get us there. Because Christ, God raised him from the dead and seated him in the heavenlies, and that's our destiny too. His power to get us there as the keeper of the church. And here it is in Revelation. Because the city is our destiny where lie our riches and glory. The fullness of his inheritance. Which is why the scripture ends with it so that we'd never forget it. It's a destiny that will be, yeah, it'll be a metamorphosis next to those little white churches, it'll be a metamorphosis into a glory that'll blow our minds. For I saw a new heaven and a new earth, Revelation 21.1. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a What? Bride, as a bride adorned for her husband. Sound familiar? It's the fulfillment of Ephesians 5, 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory without spot or blemish. And here she is coming down. And as she comes down out of heaven, From God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband, we will look up and we will say, so that is what we made possible. As we labor together here at Faith EPC. The scripture couldn't be more clear. That's what he died for. To make all that possible, Though, of course, it's just an artist's rendition and it'll be far better, but something like that is our destiny. That, something like that is why he came. That's what he died for, through the church on earth to produce its equivalent in heaven. The bride, the wife of the lamb, in all her glory. And what a place it'll be. I mean, we, we know what God can do with a creation. Can you imagine a city whose architect and builder is God? Let me close by giving you just a glimpse of the glory that it will be. 
It says in verse 15 of Revelation 22 that the one who spoke with me, the city had come down, and there was an angel holding a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with a rod 1,500 miles. Its length and its width and its height are equal. He measured the wall 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. God makes it clear here that these are not just angelic, but human measurements. And for me, that is one of the most hope-inducing verses in all the Bible because it means they are real measurements, not just mystical. It won't be just symbolic. And that's because it'll be a real city and not just this mystical state of being. And someday we'll see. Someday we'll see that, that, that what some say, you know, is a pie in the sky and the sweet by and by full of clouds and cherubs and harps and, you know, weightless angels and who would ever want to go to a place like that where all you have to do is keep your nose clean. Someday it'll come out of the sky as the most celebrated project of time and eternity, the consummation of his project on earth. of his building the church. And what a consummation because it'll not just be very real, it'll be real big. I mean, if you take 1,500 miles of width by 1,500 miles of length, you multiply that and you get a total land area, you get a footprint, you might say, of 2.25 million square miles, which is roughly the land area of the continental United States. But that's just, you know, the first floor. When you multiply that by 1,500 miles of height and who knows how many floors, you get more living space in New Jerusalem than presently exists on planet Earth. A lot more. I mean, this old world has a land area of roughly, I Google it, 57,280,000 square miles which means that the New Jerusalem will have, and get this, 60 times more living space than on the earth right now. And that's assuming a mile between the floors. All told, we're talking 3.37 billion cubic miles. It'll be as much of a country as a city. It'll be a, a whole world unto itself. It'll have enough room not only for the saints who have ever lived, but for all the angels too, just like it said in Hebrews 12 that we read. We have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels. We know it'll be a garden city. It'll be the consummation of the Garden of Eden. And what a consummation that'll be. Because now we know there will be more than enough room for all sorts of natural things, for dedicated greenways, natural preserves, regions the size of countries, outdoor activities and wilderness sanctuaries. With who knows, mountains to climb and rivers to ford and lakes to fish. Now I don't know about the lakes to fish part, I hate fishing. (laughs) But it also says there will be a book. There will be a book there. There will be such a thing as books. So clearly that's a place worth going to if you're an indoor person. And if you're an outdoor person like Julie and I are as well, well, you could say, you know, Summit County, Colorado, where we come from, eat your heart out. 
It'll be the best of the city and the country combined. It'll have a, all the creature comforts, some of the wilds of creation. It'll be all that and better and a whole lot more. Oh yeah, there's so much more. We've only scratched the surface of what's here at the climax of Scripture, of the riches, of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. It'll be the centerpiece of the new creation, as you'll see in your notes, but that's just the beginning. It'll be, if you unpack it, it'll be the wellspring of the new creation. It'll be the capital of the eternal kingdom. It'll be the sun of the new earth where we will know a conflagration, where we will know the conflagration of his passion for the bride, the wife of the lamb, a rapture in a consuming fire that'll last forever. All to the end of the civilization of a whole new creation. It's all there in Revelation, the last two chapters of Revelation. It's all there. It's where the myriads of lamps that are now in heaven will become a constellation of stars at the heart of a new creation, a celestial body in New Jerusalem, a star-celled beauty having the glory of God. And the application is almost a no-brainer if you think about it. If we are at the center of his attention, if we are the fullness of him who fills all in all, if, if the master of the angelic powers and the ruler of the nations is in his heart of hearts the keeper of the church that he might be the builder of the city, and if this city will be the centerpiece of the new creation and so much more, then I know of no higher calling in life to devote myself to that project, to the cocoon, to the lampstand. Right here at Faith Church Loveland. Application? Well, it's from a hymn, and you can fill in the blanks at the bottom of your notes. I love the church. Oh God, her walls before thee stand, dear as the apple of thine eye, engraven on thy hand. For her my tears shall fall, for her my prayers ascend, to her my cares and toils be given, till toils and cares shall end. Let me say that again as... um, you look one last time at this picture of this little white church. I love the church, O God. Her walls before thee stand, dear as the apple of thine eye, engraven on thy hand, and on thorns in your side, and in your hands. For her my tears shall fall, for her my prayers ascend, to her my cares and toils be given till toils and cares shall end. We could have sung that hymn, but as I thought about it, there's something far better that we can sing. Because in saying those words, as we sing that hymn, we're just following his example with the church by his enablement, without which all of us would have long since fallen away. Because ultimately it will all happen because of him, because of his passion 
for the church he died for as the musicians come forward. It'll all happen only because in his heart of hearts, and listen to this, the master of the angelic powers and the ruler of the nations in his heart of hearts is the keeper of the church and the builder of the city. So what better way to close than crowning him and worshiping him with all our hearts?